The Pre-Med Year, session number 244. Hello and welcome to the three-time Academy Award-nominated podcast, The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, I'll share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Thank you for being here and taking the time out of your day or during your day to listen to me here on the Pre-Med Years podcast. Last week, as I'm recording this, last week we had an amazing day as we launched our podcast. Every week we get a, a nice little spike in downloads, and last week we got a huge spike. That means you're out there sharing the podcast with your friends, with your classmates, with your advisors. I would love for you to keep doing that so we can grow even more so that collaboration, not competition, is not just the motto here on this podcast, but the motto for all pre-meds everywhere. Now, before we dive in, I want to let you know about AMSA's Pre-Med Fest. It returns to Florida November 4th and 5th at the University of South Florida. Join hundreds of students like yourself in here from physicians, med students, and subject matter experts about what matters on the road to medical school. You'll get tips not only how to get into medical school, but also how to stay healthy once there. Explore unique emerging specialties and get practice in splinting and suturing. Register now at amsapremedfest.org and receive up to $30 off regular registration, uh, the regular registration fee using the promo code MSHQ17. Again, the promo code MSHQ17. Save $30 off the regular registration until October 25th, 2017. So I will be there on November uh, November 4th. November 5th is a special day where you actually go to the medical school, I believe. That's how they did it last year. But I will be there November 4th. I'll have a session on the medical school interview, I believe. I'll also have a table set up so I can meet you. So I would love for you to come down, whether you drive down, fly down, whatever it is. Come join me and everybody else at AMSA's Pre-Med Fest. This week, I have an awesome guest who's got a great YouTube channel who is doing something very similar, started what he's doing for basically the same reasons as this podcast is available. Started He started a tutoring company, basically a free tutoring company, a club at his undergraduate institution, and has been very entrepreneurial on his journey, finding problems and finding solutions to those problems which made him a great applicant to medical school. And now he is about to start Yale Medical School pretty soon. So let's dive in and say hello to Pre-Rock. So Pre-Rock, welcome to the Pre-Med Years. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. So Pre-Rock, you are an Indian American. You're, you're following in the, the stereotypical footsteps of <laughs> many, many of my Indian doctor friends. Oh yeah. When when did you know you wanted to be a doctor, or were you one of those stereotypical kids that were told doctor, lawyer, engineer? 
Yeah, that's that's really a good question. I think I uh, I don't think I ever really knew I wanted to be a doctor. I'd always had the option open. I was lucky enough to not have parents that were like doctor or bust. <laughs> but it definitely um it definitely was in the back of my mind. And um I think it was mostly after I started undergrad, probably my second or third year in, where I realized like a lot of the things that I was passionate about, teaching um, really learning, being like a lifelong learner and like interacting with others. I noticed that like almost all three of them, uh, pretty much if you inter- take the intersection of all three, that was medicine. And I think um, the ultimate turning point, which I, I know is super cliche, because I don't think there's ever really like one point where someone's like, yeah, I want to be a doctor now. Uh, but I think like the thing that put me over the edge was um, obviously my dad also has major like heart problems as a stereotypical South, South Asian does. <laughs> so he had like a triple bypass during my third year mm. at, in college. And just like looking up, like in a triple bypass, they're really like cooling down the body. They're stopping the heart. So like in a sense, like my dad is pretty much like dead on the table. They're treating him like that. It was pretty like mind blowing to hear. And the doctor was pretty revolutionary slash, um, you know, really understanding. So I think that that's kind of tipped me over the edge to have that kind of impact on someone's life, whether you're um, any type of doctor. It was something that I was like, wow, I want to I want to provide that source of comfort for other people. What were you studying before this revelation? I was always studying molecular biology. Uh, so I studied molecular biology and public health in undergrad. Um, and so I kept my options open. I was pretty passionate about research. So I knew I was going to be doing school for a while, whether that was PhD, master's, um, or even something in like healthcare administration. But uh, it was always in like the healthcare realm. I just didn't know it was particularly medicine I wanted to go into probably until like halfway through my second year of college. And at that point, I was like, yes, yeah, so this is definitely something I, I can commit myself to. Why healthcare? What What was that interest? Where did that come from? Did you have family members or parents involved in healthcare at all? I actually have no one involved in healthcare. Again, very much against the stereotypical Indian family. Um, but the interest in healthcare, again, just came from the amount of power uh, this particular occupation has to just impact lives on a direct basis. I know there's a lot of occupations where you can change lives for the better, but in this case, I just like seeing that impact. You know, I've been teaching for so long and that it's kind of like when you're a teacher, seeing that eyes open in your students' eyes when they get something, it's kind of the same kind of feeling I would think that you can have as a doctor when you're interacting with patients, right? And I think that aspect of having that direct impact was something that really appealed to me because I can make that connection, see where some problem, someone's problem lies and try to make a positive change. Talk about teaching. You've, you've mentioned that a couple of times. When, when you say you've been a teacher, what does that mean? Uh, so I've, I've been like, a, I initially took a lot of undergrad pre-med courses initially. And what ended up happening was I really enjoyed my time. So afterward, I, we have this thing at my undergrad where you can tutor in the classes. So I would be a tutor for like general chemistry. And then slowly, uh, I work my way up to being this thing called a study group leader. And what that means is you kind of like lead your own study group alongside the undergrad class to kind of keep them up to date. Um, and I think in that I was a study group leader for general biology and specifically molecular biology. And I think at that point it was again, just so great because at Berkeley, there's all this like CRISPR Cas9 class, like crazy research going on. And to be at the forefront of that and to understand that and to be at the same campus where all these breakthroughs were happening and to be able to convey that passion to my students, because most of them see a lot of pre-med subjects as I just got to get this done to get into med school. But I think like 
what what I was able to do is kind of show them like, oh my God, like look at all these like intricacies that are happening. Like you have billions of cells in your body. All of them are replicating pretty much perfectly every second of every day of every life, like uh, throughout your entire life. And to kind of like make them un understand and enjoy the intricacy and the magnificence that is the human body. And to see them like slowly like partake in that passion and see that passion kind of grow in them is something I personally enjoyed. And that was something I was like, okay, I can also see myself doing this as a doctor could kind of make people see like the magnificence of their body in a way. Yeah. You're going to love medical school then when you go through like embryology and everything like that. And you, you realize how many things had to go right for you to be here today. It's yeah, exactly. Right. Isn't it? Isn't it? It's a miracle. It literally is. And it blows my mind every time I think about it. Like you started as this one cell that divided pretty much perfectly. All your organs are in place. You have a digest. Like it's just mind blowing. Yeah. I just can't get over it almost all the time. <laughs> so you realized a little bit later on, it, it sounded like you, you were taking a lot of pre-med stuff early on. So maybe that was in the in the background. But once you went full bore, OK, medicine is right for me. You didn't have any family members in healthcare. How did you go about finding the information that you needed and and taking those next steps to actually be a pre-med and start preparing for medical school? Oh man, I wish I wish I had had your podcast, but you'd be <laughs> very surprised by the lack of knowledge I had. Uh, and it's funny because I didn't even know like the application cycle would take a year until I like was two months away from graduating, and my friend was like, "Yo, dude, you're gonna apply," and I was like. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I might as well, right? And he's like, you know, it like takes a year, right? And he had already applied the year before. And I was like, oh my God. Like, and then I started like looking into it. So I didn't, I believe it or not, I was very uh, not educated at all. And, you know, that was primarily one of the reasons why I think like this, I think what you're doing with the podcast and just in general transparency across pre-med culture, like needs to improve a lot because, you know, a lot of stuff that I just was unaware of until I like experienced it for myself. And I was like, wow, so this is how it goes, man. I wonder how many other people don't know this. Um, <laughs> A lot. So uh, believe it or not, yeah, believe it or not, a lot of a lot of it for me was learning on the job. Like, oh, I need to start shadowing. Oh, all right. Like, how am I going to get shadowing? So sending out like mass emails to like hundred plus doctors in the area, hoping that I could get one or two responses. Like, kind of like it was literally like that level of grunt work where I'd be sending a hundred, two hundred emails just to like find a nice doctor to shadow, make them realize like I was in it for the long haul to get their trust, and you know, doing it that way. Where rather than like I never had a mentor, so I wish. I wish I had found stuff like this where, um, you know, it kind of breaks those barriers down in a way. Was it uh, a struggle at being at, you said Berkeley, right? Where you went to undergrad? Yeah, yeah, Berkeley. Was, was it a struggle being at Berkeley, which is a larger uh, undergrad school, to get pre-med advising? Or was that something you just didn't even know to go seek out? <laughs> yeah, it's a blessing in disguise because what happens is at any big institution, I would say not even Berkeley, any public institution, what happens is you, there's so many, so there's resources there, but the problem is that it gets diluted down by the number of people there are. So it's a combination of both of the things you said where the resources are definitely present. Like I think we, our pre-health pre advising department has definitely um, reached out and made much bigger impacts now. But the problem is some students might not even know about it because the student population size is like 35,000, right? And on top of that, there might be other resources out there, but a lot of students just don't even know about them. So it's a combination of, yes, the resources are there, but the problem is because it's a large public university, no one's going to spoon feed you like, oh, go get advising. No one's going to be like, oh, by the way, did you hear about this? Because there's too many people. So you kind of have to like take initiative and figure all that stuff out on your own. And that's the that's the part where I think um, there could be a lot more catalysts, I'd say, to kind of make that easier to, to uh, access. You talked about 
realizing the the length and the the timeline for the application process, what do you think was the biggest shock to you uh, in the pre-med world when you realized like, oh my gosh, the MCAT is an eight hour long test? What what was that big shock for you? <laughs> I, I could give you two examples here. So um, I, I, I was lucky with the MCAT because I took the pre-2015 one, believe it or not, because I was like rushing for that one because that too was a last minute realization. And I was like, oh, it's going to be an eight hour test. And I figured this out in like what, October. And it was changing in January. like uh, the January of the next year. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I have like a year to figure my like life out. And so I kind of like figured it out. I was like, I'd much rather take a three hour test than eight hours. But that, you know, so that was a pretty big one. Uh, but I think the second one was, I was just listening to your other podcast the other day about secondaries, <laughs> right? And, um, and you, you know, your number one tip was like, pre-write those secondaries and you won't believe like how many people told me to do that. But the problem is I heard that like a month before those secondaries came in and I was like, oh, it'll be okay. And I think the shock for me was getting those secondaries, man. They don't, they don't take any mercy on you at all. I was getting like <laughs> six, seven secondaries a day. And they're like, by the way, we want this back in like two weeks. And I'm like, bro, like I don't have, I don't, I mean, I thought they would understand that I'm getting six or seven of them, but they don't have any mercy. And so that was a huge realization for me. Cause I was like, man, it's like so unlogical for me to finish. Cause I'm not a good writer. I'm a slow writer. And so trying to meet that deadline was pretty much impossible. I think for some secondaries, I sent them back a month, six weeks late because I was like, I just can't. And that was a huge shock. What did you do to get through those secondaries? How did you prioritize what you worked on? Uh, a lot of learning on the go. And again, so I'm, I made a video on this, but like I learned afterwards that there were certain secondaries that you should prioritize because they, these schools were heavily rolling. But again, I didn't know that on the spot. So like, you know, like a lot of like big private schools, like uh, the IVs at least don't work on a rolling basis. So what I should have known was like, I didn't have to prioritize. I mean, in a sense, you don't earn as at, at as big of a disadvantage for those schools because they make all their decisions at once. But there are certain schools like you, Mitch, and um, pretty much all the UCs that do function on a pretty rolling basis. And so kind of prioritizing those secondaries was something I wish I had known. But for me, I was just like so overwhelmed that I would literally just be like going through my inbox and I'll just pick one randomly. There was no strategy involved. <laughs> and uh, I think I could have, I could have uh, strategized that a bit more. And, and what you mean by pick one randomly is you looked at them and said, oh, this one looks pretty easy. I'll do this one. Yeah, thanks for bringing that one down for me. <laughs> you, you, just, you know what I did and initially when I got any secondary, I was like trying to make myself feel better. So I like write all the questions down in this nice Excel template, and then I'd be like, "That's enough for today." Like, you know, like write down what the deadline was, kind of take all the prerequisite information down before I even started working on it. So it was kind of me like forestalling the inevitable in a sense. <laughs> you were staging it all with little tiny victories. Exactly. Yeah. Every victory in the med school application process is a big victory. You got to take it for what it's worth. Yeah. So you're going to Yale for medical school. So you obviously were successful enough to get an interview there, get accepted there. What do you Mm -hmm. think made your application stand out to where you were getting the interviews at these Ivy League schools? Um, I think... I mean, again, the, the problem is I never know if this is true or not, but I think one thing I, that was a bit different about my application was the level of, um, I think, entrepreneurship in a sense that I showed, because I think Berkeley did a really good job in teaching me, like, if there's a problem out there, you're never too small to, like, take it on. And so, you know, in my pre-med years, uh, <laughs> wow, that's the name <laughs> of this podcast, uh, 
that's so weird to say also. But anyway, uh, back when I was a first and second year at Berkeley, I, I was pretty much in a very dark place, primarily because I just saw like all these great people, so much like lack of transparency that I was like, man, I'm so incompetent. And then in my third year, what I ended up realizing was a lot of people felt the same way. And so I created an organization to kind of fight that. And, and I know your, your uh, motto for this is like fighting competition through cooperation. And believe it or not, the motto of my organization was fighting competition through cooperation. So I think it's Pretty, pretty amazing that we kind of aligned on that. But the point was of that organization to increase co cooperation amongst pre-meds, to increase transparency among pre-meds. And we did that by providing free one-on-one -on -one tutoring to any incoming students, providing advising to any incoming students to kind of like get students to help themselves and help each other. And so with that organization, I realized, first of all, it took off pretty well. I was surprised by the level of interest in it. But second of all, I realized like if there's a problem out there, like don't just live with it. Just because you dealt with it doesn't mean other people have to. Like, learn from your experiences and then go out there and fix it. So that organization, it was successful. And then in that sense, I kind of like took that success and built on it. So in my gap year, I did a very similar thing where I started a YouTube channel and I even created an organic chemistry board game called React. And both of those were intended to bridge these big problems I saw. First of all, the first one being organic chemistry being like the bane of every pre-med's existence. <laughs> and, and, and second of all, like the YouTube channel was mostly to increase educational accessibility for this, again, very lack of transparent pre-med pre culture. And I think all three of those things... Um, I think med schools respect that, you know, like they, they, don't, they don't look for success all the time. They, they'd see that, oh, wow, like you saw a problem and you were willing to address it. And I think that was something that I talked a lot about in my interviews that was well met. Um, and I think that must have been, I hope, uh, a big reason why uh, I was privileged enough to, to get in. So you being an Indian American, obviously it's, it's not an underrepresented uh, minority for medicine. Did you feel at a disadvantage at all because of um, your ethnicity and your background? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I've grappled with this. I don't think I ever felt as at an explicit disadvantage ever. Um, and I, I don't think that there was any sense of that, but I did like notice that there were a lot of questions that kind of hinted at this diversity factor. And for me, that diversity factor question was always so hard to answer primarily because I can't rely on like saying I'm an Indian American in a sense, because it's like, well, we got enough of those, you know, like, <laughs> so, and then, uh, so it's like, how do I go about answering that question when it seemed, you know, like diversity, our whole life is kind of, we we're taught like diversity is like race or sexuality or, or something like that, which for me, I was like, okay, like none of that appeals to me. So in that sense, I think it was an implicit disadvantage in that, like, I can't answer that question as well as, you know, someone who might be an underrepresented minority could have, but in a way, I still think that there were feasible answers to that question that still could have at least um, been on par, but it's just harder to think of those when it's something that's so non-traditional, you know, like usually you think of it in terms of race or, or sexuality when for me, both of those were clearly not things I could talk about in a sense because it's not really diverse. Yeah. And I, I actually never recommend talking about uh, race, ethnicity and stuff in diversity questions. So yeah. I, I'm interested to know how you answered those. Oh, <laughs> I have a video on this, but it's the same thing, right? It was what I just mentioned where I actually answered it with the fact, uh, and I wish I had gotten your advice earlier, but I actually, when I was writing my secondaries, I wrote it in the sense of I was diverse because of my immigrant experiences, right? And uh, again, probably not the best answer because there's a, there's a lot of successful immigrants. And I mean, not to take anything away from them, that's been phenomenal, but it's just, again, it's not diverse if it's prevalent, right? Uh, and I so when I was writing my secondaries, I wrote about it in that sense. And it only hit me later that it didn't have to be restricted to like those 
black and white norms that we're brought up with. And I think the primary reason for this is like, you know, you go to any school's office of diversity and affairs, and what is it about? It's about like race or sexuality or your immigrants, right? And that's why it's so hard for me to think outside that balance. But I think once I started interviewing, I started seeing like diversity is more about your experiences. What are you passionate about? How have you brought those passions to life? And again, like think about like that organic chemistry board game I told you about earlier, right? Um, when I mentioned that to any of my interviewers, they were just like, whoa, what? What are you doing? You're making a board game for organic chemistry, right? Like, most people spend their gap year doing research in a lab. And so they had heard that answer so much. But then whenever I told them this one thing, they were like, tell me more about that, right? Yeah. So I was like, oh, I realized like my diversity factor is like enacting change to big problems that I might not have even known that I was doing. Uh, and so I think that was something that I ended up, that maybe should have been my answer, you know, like seeing a problem and going after addressing it. And, and that board game was a really good example. And um, that definitely caught the eye of pretty much every interview I talked to. I was like, yeah, I'm making a board game. They're like, how does that work? Right. So that was pretty cool. It, it's amazing. I love when, when guests come on the podcast and, and they, they give that exact uh, response of, I, I mentioned this in the interview and the interview was like, Oh, tell me more about that. Cause that's exactly <laughs> the interviewers get so bored with students who give the same answers over and over and over again. So as soon as yeah. you go off script and you're like, Oh yeah, I I climbed uh, the the Himalayas or whatever. And they're like, oh, tell me about that <laughs> or just anything different. Uh, I yeah. I had a student who got accepted to ten medical schools. She was an actress, and all oh, of fantastic. the interviewers wanted to talk about was her acting career. And yeah, it's just they just want something different, and they they want to right. have a conversation with you. And it sounds like that's how all of your interviews went, or the good ones at least. Well, well, near the end, right? Like I started learning this near the end. The interview trail is a lot of like learning and troubleshooting on your own. You start realizing, oh, people care about this. So <laughs> yeah, I agree. So talk about that, um, that, that interview process for you. You, you start off, uh, it doesn't sound like maybe the initial ones uh, didn't go as well as <laughs> some of the, the former ones. How did you go about uh, preparing for the interviews and then as you were going how did you get the feedback that you needed to start changing yeah so i started my interviews and i was literally like that pre-med that was like preparing the answer to every question but it was too scripted in a sense right like i remember my first interview was like uc davis and i was like i brought up in my interview because i had looked up so much stuff on uc davis i brought up like their their office of like social welfare or something and they're like wow we didn't even know we had one of those and i was like okay that's like <laughs> that's a problem because it like clearly shows that like you did way too much research and you're not giving like genuine answers to the question so i think you know in that sense you start learning from your experiences because you kind of start seeing people's reactions and what people want to talk about and i think by the end it got to a point where I realized like, yes, some scripted answers in a sense of like knowing how you're going to answer the question is good, but it's also phenomenal to, again, go off script or let's say they ask you a follow-up question to really just speak from your heart. And, um, and again, like I think with Yale, I think that was the interview that I felt where I just, I literally did not stick to any of the answers that I, that I had written down. Uh, we, we, I met with my interviewer and he just asked me a question. And at that point I was just like, there's something on my mind. He was like, why do you want to go here? And I was like, you know, like all the students here just look so happy. And it's something I have never seen at any other med school. Like every other med school I go to any third year I talk to is busy. And today all the third years I saw were literally smiling, helping answer questions. That's something that I literally was, had not seen. And that was obviously not the question. I had already known that they were going to ask me why Yale. And I had an answer for that. But that was not the answer I ended up saying just because I went strictly based on the experiences and that came out as way more genuine. And we, could, we had a much longer conversation after that. What do you think, after interviewing at Yale, getting accepted at Yale, 
what do you think it is that is the the magic sauce behind being that complete applicant that that Yale was like, you know what, pre rock, I want you. <laughs> I think, um, yeah. So the problem is, I think I get asked this question a lot too, where they're like, what are what are they med school looking for? And it's just like, you know, the problem is they're not looking for really any one type of person mm-hmm. and i don't think they are i don't want to speak on behalf of them by any means but <laughs> they are it's uh, yeah right they're, they're they want people that are passionate about what they do and how they do it you know whether that's something as you know you might think it's insignificant but let's say you're really passionate about like caterpillar research and you're super <laughs> into it and it's made your entire life beautiful well then by all means talk to them about why caterpillar research has changed your life and i promise you they will find that interesting but the problem is Today, there's so many students that think you need to do A, B, C, D, E to get into med school that they keep going back to like those, like that template, like, oh, here, I did research for two years. I shadow for two years. And then med schools can kind of see what I, I'm, I'm, again, not talking on their behalf, at least based on the people I've talked to. I can kind of tell when someone has done something because they think they need to versus they've done something because they want to and they're passionate about it. And when it's a ladder, it makes all the difference because it just comes across, right? Like we were talking earlier about just how magnificent the human body is. And I'm sure you can just sense by the way, like I'm fascinated by it. That is something that has bewildered me for like the longest time. So when you're driven by something like that, I think it just comes across as different. And, um, and by any means, like I, I would much rather, if I was ever on an admissions committee, I would probably like to see that level of passion than someone who did A, B, C, D, E, F, thinking that, oh, A, B, C, D, E, F is what everyone else did, and therefore I have met these check marks and I should be ready to go. Yeah. What uh, What was something in your application that you did because you thought you had to do it? <laughs> oh, man, so much in a sense, right? Like, of course, like mentioning, um, I think uh, the research was pivotal and um, just talking. So the funny part is my first research experience, I had no idea what the heck was going on. Like, you know, it's funny. Like I literally had no clue. I was doing things for the sake of doing it. And believe it or not, I, I kind of regret it, right? Because I think I went into research initially because like this is something I have to do to med school. And the first two years, I was literally just taking instructions, never asking questions, never understanding what I was doing. And I was just like, I just need this because I need it on my application. And that's that. And so my first research experience, believe it or not, was probably way more detrimental than useful for me, even though it went on my application, because I didn't learn much from it. But near the end, my mentor came up to me. He's like, you know, I'm starting to notice that you aren't nearly interested in this. You might just be doing this for the application. I would strongly recommend like you look into this, read up on it. Like I need you to ask thought provoking questions because if you're not doing that, there's no reason for you to be around. That was kind of a wake up call for me because I was like, I can't just be doing things because I need to be doing them. I need to be engaged or not do them at all. And so after that, I took much more of an acting active stance in research. Uh, I got super involved in the whole CRISPR-Cas9 phenomenon that's taking over the world, uh, pretty much involved in molecular research. I looked up behind like everything I was doing. And by the end, I was write, able to write a thesis and pretty much substantiate like exactly why I was doing things. I'm pretty much on a graduate student level. And that would never have happened if I was just doing it for the sake of doing it, which I was for the first two years. And I'm glad I made that shift because again, you learn a lot from research that you probably would not learn anywhere else. Was there any point along the way, once you decided to be a pre-med, where you doubted yourself or, or second-guessed yourself or thought about something different? I think that's a prerequisite to be a pre-med. <laughs> I don't think you can be a pre-med if you have not done that because uh, the, the path is so long and so brutal. Uh, I mean, and brutal in a good way that you have to have these moments where you're like, am I cut out for this? But in the end of the day, they make you stronger, right? Because um, if you can stand through that, 
it shows that you have the resilience. You have the determination to stick through, what, 10, 15, 20 more years of schooling at least? Oh, okay, fine. I'll give 10, low end, right? Uh, and the, the things are not, this is not as bad as it's going to get, right? Med school gets difficult. Residency gets difficult. And you're going to have those times where you're going to question yourself. But at the end of the day, if you know you've stuck through it, you know you have the passion to remain committed to it, and you've stayed through it, by the time you got into med school, at that point, like, I think it speaks to your character and also speaks to your ability to succeed in med school because you've you've gone through it. And I think that's something that every pre-med goes through. So I'm sure there's hundreds of people that, you know, think that they're not cut out to be pre-med because, you know, I don't know, they had a bad last semester or they got crappy grades. But trust me, it happens to everyone. And I think one part of med school is how are you responding from that? You know, the, the Chinese proverb is like fall down seven times, stand up eight. <laughs> you can't just fall down seven times and stay down, right? <laughs> and so I think that's a big... Uh, big uh, barometer to be a doctor resilience yeah it's huge when you decided to go to yale was was that a choice between schools or was yale the only school that you got into uh it was a it was a choice between um yale and ucla uh and i like being completely transparent about my process just again because there's no transparency in this process at all yeah like, they're like med, med students that you ask them and they're like yeah i go to med school and you're like okay well can you tell me more and they're like yeah i got in like i'm like <laughs> okay that's not helping me at all so um yeah i was choosing between yale and ucla it was mostly financial in a sense so i i was offered a better financial incentive. I mean, the financially, they were both about equal, but I think the one thing that drew me to Yale, first of all, I've been in California my whole life. So if there's a chance to go four years out and, you know, again, and expand my comfort zone, expand the challenges I'm going to encounter, I'll take that. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, if I want to come back, I still have the chance to. That's the beauty of it. Um, and the other part about Yale that um, I don't know if a lot of people know is that Yale is really forward thinking in terms of like the lack of competition. I think they were pretty much the, one of the first med schools that implemented the pass fail system. To this very day, they don't really, um, they don't really have, they have tests, but they're not, those, those tests are not intended to kind of intimidate you. All of those tests are intended to provoke you to learn as much as you can. They have this thing called the Yale system. And the Yale system is all geared toward making sure that every student, um, feels comfortable and can make the most out of his or her education that a lot of med schools, I know most med schools now are pass fail, but that sense of like students being able to do what they want at, at Yale was a much larger degree of freedom. And I think I really appreciated the, the amount of autonomy they gave their students. Let's talk about your YouTube channel. You talked about um, trying to bring transparency. Obviously that's what we're trying to do here on the podcast as well. Yeah, I love it. Talk about the, the, the impetus for starting your YouTube channel and where you see that going in the future? Oh, yeah. So the impetus. Uh, believe it or not, it's a funny story. I, I don't know if you've read the book When Breath Becomes Air. I have not or, read it yet. Oh, man, you should read it. It's great. Um, it's something that I've... It, it, I don't read often. The last book I read was in like 10th grade. So um, I, I was told to do some medical reading before interviews started because they were like, you should probably read up on the field. And I was like, okay, fine. So I read this book. I read a lot of Atul Gawande, of course. Love Atul. Um, and, yeah. yeah, exactly, right? Um, and the one thing I realized from both of those authors were they were very good about documenting their experiences and what led them to, I don't know, what led them to change their career or big changes in their career and how they are governed by interactions they had with patients or other anything else in the medical field, right? Like you, if you read Atul Gawande, he'll always talk about a patient and how that changes perspective on medicine or particular things. And I'm like, I wonder how he's keeping track of this. Cause he clearly remembers these encounters to an enormous amount of detail. And initially I was like, okay, well he's a writer, so he must be writing these things down and eventually like, you know, biggie, biggie making the big themes from it. So at that point I was like, I think that's really cool. I think that's really important. That level of self-reflection and, and reflecting on it. 
And so I was like, but I'm not a writer. I'm like the last person, you know, it took me like six, six months to finish secondaries. So, um, I was like, I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm good at talking. I, I would love to talk. So the impetus to starting my YouTube channel was kind of creating this forum where I could going into med school, reflect on anything and everything that happened to me, whether that was my white coat ceremony or the, or the first time I, I don't know, went into an anatomy lab and, and saw a cadaver or anything like that, that kind of just changed my perspective on medicine and kind of documented my growth as a doctor. Cause I think that was something I really wanted to do. And given that I'm just starting my journey, this was the perfect time. So I started the channel, I think, uh, January of this year, pretty much. And where are you hoping, now that you're starting medical school soon, I don't know if you've heard, but medical school is kind of tough and <laughs> keeps you busy. Um, what, are you hoping, uh, what are you hoping to do with the channel as you progress forward through your education? Um, yeah, so it's mostly going to be an outlet for pretty much anything and everything that impacts me meaningfully. It's kind of a way for me to document my journey and kind of reflect on things. So I don't, I mean, obviously won't be posting like every week, which I have been, but I'll probably just post like any big event or anything that I think is important that I didn't know before. And I think other people should know, I'll probably use the channel as an outlet. Um, and of course, along the way, I like doing things like you're doing as well, where I can just kind of be like, yo guys, I just learned something that I think everyone should know and, um, kind of just use YouTube as an outlet to get it out there. Knowing that the the audience listening to this is going to be pre-med, what do you think is the best video that they should go watch on your channel? Ooh, I like, it depends. So if they're taking the MCAT soon, I have a nice video on like just big things that I thought are important for the MCAT or how you can go about approaching the MCAT. So that one, that video is called All You Need to Kill the MCAT. Uh, but there's another video that we've already hinted on a lot. And I think this is absolutely important to get down right away, which is the whole diversity factor, right, Dr. Gray? Like understanding the meaning of diversity does not just strictly confine you to those things that we've been taught growing up, sexuality, race, uh, all that jazz. It can be so much broader than that. So there's a video where I kind of address the diversity question because that shows up not just in med school application, that shows up in college applications. That shows up in even like you're applying for a volunteer position. I'm sure they might ask you something like that. So that it shows up a lot. And I think getting that holistic perspective on diversity is absolutely important because every med school secondary, almost every single one has that question. So getting it down early and seeing how you're going to foster that diversity, your diversity factor is, uh, I think, super beneficial. So I have a video on that as well. Now that you're on on the good side of the application process, you have your acceptance <laughs> and you're starting school soon. What do you say to the the student that's starting off on his or her journey and is looking at that hill that they have to climb? How do you, uh, what do you say to them to motivate them to keep going? Um, I say you take it one step at a time. I think I'm a runner, so I never, I never like to overanalyze. Like, obviously, if you're going to run a marathon, you can start and you can say you have 26 miles left, or you can start and say, I'm going to take this one mile at a time and see how I feel, right? And I think that's the biggest thing because the pre-med journey is a never-ending slope upward. <laughs> I'm sure you can attest to that too. You have challenges in your daily life to this day, I'm sure, that you probably would never have imagined looking back, right? And I think every day you'll have new challenges. Every day you'll have a new question of self-doubt. But you take it one day at a time. You want to have, you want to, at the end of the day, you want to have that level of dedication to know that I'm just going to get back up if there's something that knocks me down and just fight the next day. Uh, and I know this sounds like an epic battle. It's usually not that bad. But uh, just know that if you take it one day at a time, I think it's much better than, because I, I still get emails from students who are like, 
I'm in like high school and I'm like really anxious about med school. I'm like, holy oh, cow, that's slow, a lot of slow your stress. roll. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that is so much unnecessary stress, buddy. Like, calm down. You'll be okay. Yeah. Um, so like take it one day at a time. I promise you, you don't know where life will take you, but it's going to be for the better. So just don't, don't worry about connecting the dots now. That's the Steve Jobs quote I love. You can only connect the dots looking backwards. You cannot connect them looking forward. So you don't know why things happen, but I promise you, if you take it one day at a time, you'll see why they happen the way they happen. All right. Again, that was Prereq. Go check him out. Go check out his YouTube channel. Just search for Prereq. You'll find him. It's easy. He's got a ton of great information, and he gave us a lot of great videos to go watch and listen to as um, as you go and explore his channel. So thank you, Prereq, for taking some time. Good luck on your journey to medical school and beyond. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would love for you to share it with a friend, with a classmate, with your advisor. Let them know we are here to not compete with the advisors, but to help support them, help support the medical students on your journey. If you haven't checked out the Specialty Stories podcast yet, go check out the podcast for today. It was with a pediatric neurologist who specializes in headache medicine. Again, that's Specialty Stories. And it's session number 33. I would love for you to keep joining us every week. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app of choice. If you're just listening in the browser on your phone or browser on your computer, you are missing out. You get access to this podcast and all the other podcasts that we do for free every week. Make it easy and go subscribe today. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here at the Pre-Med Years where we talk to the people behind the Texas Medical and Dental School Application Service. Again, that's the TMD SAS. We go behind the scenes at the TMD SAS. That's next week here at the Pre-Med Years.